welcome to Technology and Security. TS is a podcast exploring the intersections of emerging technologies and national security. I'm your host, Dr. Mia Hamanderi. I'm the inaugural director of the Emerging Technology Program at the United States Studies Center, and we're based in the University of Sydney. My guest today is Jason Matheny. Thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me on, Mia. Jason is the president and CEO of RAND Corporation. He previously led White House Technology and National Security Policy in the National Security Council and the Office of Science and Technology Policy. Jason founded the Center for Security and Emerging Technology, or CSET, at Georgetown University, was a commissioner on the National Security Commission on Artificial Intelligence, and the director of the Intelligence Advanced Research Projects Activity, IARPA. He's also worked at the World Bank, Oxford University, the Applied Physics Laboratory, and Princeton University. We're really thrilled to have you here, Jason. Oh, I'm really thrilled to be here. And I'm, I'm honored also to be following Sue Gordon, who's um, one of my former bosses and just an amazing human being. Excellent. We were stoked to have her on, and we're really thrilled to have you here too. We're coming to you today from the lands of the Ngunnawal people. We pay our respects to their elders, past, present, and emerging, both here and wherever you're listening. We acknowledge their continuing connection to land, sea, and community, and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. So, Jason, it's been a really big year already in 2023 for tech policy. With your experience in the White House and intelligence, what are some of the top technology challenges the U.S. is wrangling with? And where have you looked for inspiration to address these challenges? Yeah, I, I think one of the big ones that's top of mind for folks right now is uh, is AI. And I think ChatGPT sort of woke up the policy community um, in ways that were very concrete. I mean, you know, we, we had been working on this um, for, for several years, um, but for elected representatives to actually be playing around with AI systems because of ChatGPT, I think made this much more tangible um, for the policy community in a way before that it was more abstract. So that's, that's certainly one of the things that's top of mind for, for policymakers right now, I think not just in the US, but also here in Australia and, and globally. By the way, I was really impressed by a recent discussion paper that came out of the Australian government on uh, safety issues uh, related to AI. I mean, I, I can't remember a sort of United States deliberative document that whose, whose first sort of analytic effort was, hey, let's look at what the rest of the world is doing before deciding on um, what our own um, governance pathway is going to be. So there's this really rich discussion in the paper um, that looks at approaches that a variety of countries are taking, regulatory approaches, non-regulatory approaches, sort of mapping them on the spectrum between different levels of, of governance. Um, and I think that doing that kind of international scan is really useful. There is a sort of performative and then substantive aspect of, um, of tech policy. And um, I think the, the substance of tech policy that I think is probably most consequential right now is going to be around things like AI, semiconductors, um, and uh, synthetic biology. I think those are those are three that I think are just profoundly important um, because they they all have enormous upside and also enormous risk. Um, so figuring out how to navigate those is especially important. You've talked about um, biotechnology and also then synthetic biology. Could you break those down a little bit for people so that they can have some insight into what you're talking about? Yeah, so biotechnology is a more general term of just leveraging biology as a technology. Um, and you know that can include everything from um, from pharmaceuticals to uh, the design of organisms that um, uh, can produce materials or chemicals. 
Um, synthetic biology is um, a sort of more, a newer term um, used to um, encompass uh, uh, DNA synthesis, so the production of, of DNA um, or the editing of DNA or other nucleic acids to, um, uh, to produce organisms that have you know, specific properties. And what's unusual about um, synthetic biology as sort of a discipline now is that it, it turns biology into an, an engineering, a, a, a sort of subset of engineering, so that you can get um, biology to carry out very specific tasks um, with the same you know, level, it, it, at least with intent, of, of precision of, of other engineering disciplines. Um, and I think you know one of the um, one of the things that we'll have to navigate as a as a sort of technology discipline is there's these great things that you can do with synthetic biology like producing um, uh, new molecules that have therapeutic effects and uh, designing you know th new therapies that can improve human health, but you can also use it to design novel pathogens that are capable of uh, pandemics that are even worse than COVID or even worse than the 1918 influenza things that are, um, could be quite catastrophic. Yeah, it's, a, it's, really, it's actually quite a scary proposition, particularly when you add in that genetic element, which is also part of it. Thank you for um, setting that out so clearly. I want to just pause for a moment on the tensions between democratic governments and the regulation of these technologies. Um, you know, I heard you speak a little bit about this this morning, and I was wondering where you see that those tensions lie and, and drawing out, I guess, from that discussion paper, how we can continue to inform our approach. Yeah, I mean, so one of the things that I um, that I think about with with the approach that we're likely to take with with AI as as an example, but I think this you know could apply just as much to synthetic biology or quantum um, or you know materials, semiconductors, etc. Is we need to be thinking about what are the um, the kind of asymmetric advantages that democracies um, uh, have from a technology. And one thing that's really interesting about um, about AI right now um, is uh, there's, I think, um, a sense that there might be an asymmetric advantage for democracies to benefit from um, from these large language models compared to autocracies, um, because autocracies generally don't like the idea of uh, some system that they don't control generating text or other media. Um, and it is true that the, the text that's generated by these large models is pretty unpredictable. Um, and if you want to actually govern the content um, that comes out of these models, um, that's a big challenge. And so you know, the regulations in China, for example, around these large language models is going to make it very difficult for tech developers to actually you know, work on the state of the art. Um, there was a really fantastic piece in uh, Foreign Affairs uh, by Helen Toner, uh, Jeff Ding, and, and others, uh, just this week, um, describing some of the challenges that uh, that China is going to have um, in governing large language models uh, if they want to treat it like most other things and have you know be able to have uh, censorship standards applied to the outputs of those models. To succeed in AI, you need, as you've just pointed out, among other things, data and leading edge compute capacity. Restricting competitor access to compute is something you proposed in a recent Senate testimony. You've kind of just talked us through why. What might that mean in practice? I mean, you've kind of suggested a risk-based regulatory framework, but what does that mean for open innovation? 
Yeah, I think the um, what you'd like is to have um, some sort of uh, approach to governance that allows all the good uses of the technology while preventing all the bad uses of the technology. <laughs> the right? utopian that's, that's regulatory the utopian framework. Goal here. <laughs> and so what's what's interesting about um, about AI is that right now the bottlenecks for um, for these large models um, is is access to uh, to compute. And that is actually something that you could have this level of, of screening um, where um, you could sort of have end use or end user controls where um, you know, the, the infrastructure that's used for training these large models is not widely distributed. Um, it's, uh, it's highly concentrated and it's highly concentrated right now um, in a set of companies and democratic countries that follow the rule of law. So if you really wanted to um, uh, to ensure that these models are ones that are used responsibly, we're in like a pretty favorable window of opportunity here right now, where um, we can have those end user and user controls at the point of compute. Um, that cloud computing providers could do know your customer screening, but also sort of know your process screening. Like, is this particular process that's running on on the computing infrastructure one that is creating a really good you know formula for um, a medicine? Or is it one that's um, that's likely to be used for you know training a cyber weapon? This leads really neatly into a conversation about supply chains. Can you connect for the listeners the supply the, the supply chain linkages between compute capacity? Yeah. So the the compute that's that's being used for training these these large language models uh, depends on um, a, a very small. Uh, um, type of, uh, sorry, a small category of chips um, uh, like advanced GPUs um, and uh, to a lesser extent machine learning ASICs, so specialized uh, AI chips. And the um, supply chain for those chips is extremely narrow. Um, you know, there's just a couple of companies that produce these chips. Uh, those, the manufacturing of those chips is done right now in just one place in the world. Uh, in Taiwan, um, and the tools that are used for the manufacturing of those chips on Taiwan um, are produced by just a few countries, you know, primarily the United States, Japan, and the Netherlands. So it's this highly concentrated uh, supply chain um, with a bunch of choke points that right now, again, are sort of favorable towards governance um, because they're, uh, you know, concentrated in, in countries. Uh, that have a strong rule of law, that have a strong, uh, you know, governance system, um, and are uh, and are ones that you know care about safety and security. It's just incredibly costly for somebody to produce their own semiconductor foundry to produce the chips that are needed for these um, data centers that train the large AI models. So I think um, we're in a kind of favorable position of focusing on compute as the area of governance, in part because the supply chain is so narrow, so concentrated, and has these key choke points. Does that mean then that other technologies like broad AI applications or quantum, for example, might might face different regulatory challenges? And, and I guess a two-part question, how do you see that playing out in, de in that decoupling, at least in a compute perspective, between the US and China? Um, there, there are um, certain kinds of choke points in uh, quantum supply chains. As one example, um, superconducting approaches to um, quantum sensing and quantum computing uh, often rely on um, uh, these Josephson junctions that are um, manufactured using niobium, and there aren't that many niobium foundries in the world. And 
Um, so that ends up being one choke point. Um, in biotech, uh, you know, DNA synthesis and DNA sequencing involve uh, tools that have components that aren't widely uh, manufactured. So there, there are choke points there. I think, though, probably the semiconductor industry is unique to its level of concentration. It is, though, at the base of these other technologies. So in some ways, semiconductors will still be a choke point for these other technologies as well. I've written a lot about the information environment and have noted the automation and amplification of disinformation that AI enables. What applications of AI in disinformation campaigns are you most concerned about? Uh, you know, right now, the main rate limiter for disinformation campaigns has just been the level of human effort, um, you know, that Russia or China or others need to employ um, to carry out disinformation attacks. Um, the challenge is when you can automate that fully, um, and it's uh, right now defies forensics. So, you know, we can't distinguish reliably uh, between um, auto-generated text or um, in some cases auto-generated images uh, and authentic text or authentic images. And it's going to get harder and harder, I think, um, to tell the difference between auto-generated video and, um, and authentic video. Um, so I think it will lead to a general sort of level of mistrust of our media environment. Um, and it's, it's, uh, it's going to have applications, I think, not only to disinformation and influence campaigns, but also uh, to spear phishing. Given the extensive noise already in the information environment, can you describe why distinguishing user-generated content from AI-generated content is important? And how do you see that we would do that without straying into content moderation? Yeah, I think, uh, I think it's important um, in part because the function of democratic governance depends on having some shared sense of what the truth is. And it's, um, it's really hard to reach compromise in policy or agreement in policy unless you have some shared basis of uh, deciding what is true and what's not. Um, so if, if we're saturated with a media environment that, um, that has no clear distinctions between um, truth and fabrication, I think that makes governance much, much harder. I do think that there are some technical approaches that that could be used to make authenticity clearer. Um, among them are, you know, proposals to um, embed watermarks um, in uh, in generated media um, or in authentic media and allow the distinction between the two. So having sort of like cryptographic signatures embedded within um, within different kinds of media, whether that's you know audio or uh, imagery or, or video. Um, and uh, there's probably also advances on the forensic side, but I think that the forensics is likely to be a kind of a cat and mouse game with a constant sort of moving um, arms race between detection and generation, whereas watermarking is something that could be more robust. We deal with this today with counterfeit currency, um, which I mean, for, for most of us is a minor nuisance if, if we notice it at all um, or we have to deal with it at all. Um, so uh, a problem that, in fact, could be, be, have been sort of existential if we had not developed ways of detecting counterfeit currency has been sort of addressed through technical means um, by having things like watermarks um, and physical tags that we can use to distinguish the authentic from the counterfeit. I guess following on from that, can we talk a little bit more about truth and democracy? 
Can you talk us through the RAND project called Truth Decay? The the term Truth Decay is one that that we uh, created some some years ago. Michael Rich and Jennifer Cavanaugh, who were studying this problem of sort of the erosion of norms and policy debates. So you know the the weakening of of references to evidence, changes in journalistic standards, the use of uh, of social media platforms to sort of amplify content that might not be authentic, the um, the changes also in the civics education, um, all of those things sort of in in combination appear to have have really shifted the way in which evidence is used in um, in policy debates. I mean, we, we were sort of you know thinking what is what does the future of policy look like if we don't have a strong foundation of facts and evidence? So we started studying this problem um, and then thinking about what are what are some possible policy approaches to deal with um, with this uh, phenomenon of truth decay. So then, how do we use technology to strengthen the institutions of democracy? I think um, one uh, one thing that I really am interested in is. Um, is figuring out uh, ways that we can use AI as sort of a defender of our media environment. Um, so, um, you know, one is uh, like have have AI systems that are are pointing out factual errors in content. Um, have AI systems that are um, presenting um, sort of like you know counterfactuals for us that sort of exercise our critical thinking. Um, it's an incredible tool for summarizing. Uh, content that otherwise might be inaccessible. I mean, I, I use um, large language models today to summarize things that I'm just not going to be able to get to, you know, read a full report and I, you know, need it sort of condensed or like, tell me the intersection between this report and another topic that I'm that I'm working on. So it can be an incredible educational tool. Um, and then lastly, there's some work uh, done by my colleague, uh, uh, Teddy Collins, um, at Rand, who's been thinking about um, AI as a tool for um, for democratic participation, just that we can we can use sort of AI as a as a way of um, not only becoming more informed about um, uh, policy questions, um, but also finding ways to to engage with them, to access um, you know different debates uh, that we otherwise might be uh, distant from. I'm going to pivot back to AI standards for a second. In a recent Senate testimony, you talked about the need for AI standards that national security agencies can leverage. Can you set out this argument in a bit more detail? Yeah, so there's um, these obscure uh, technology standards bodies. Uh, there's one, for example, called ISO SC42, which is the sort of international standards committee for, um, for AI. And uh, these technology standards are ways of, of saying, hey, we think that um, a particular technology needs to have the following characteristics in order to be useful um, in a harmonized way um, around industry globally. And um, the reason then for having standards is so that, you know, different systems can talk to each other no matter what country you're in. So, you know, having Wi-Fi standards makes a lot of sense so that if I'm traveling, I can be sure to connect to Wi-Fi um, in Australia just the same way that I connect to Wi-Fi in the United States. Um, and it also makes sense to have, you know, standards for uh, public safety be the same, like, you know, road construction, bridge construction, aviation. Um, so these technology standards can um, can have a big impact on the shape of a technology. Um, you want to sort of bake in the principles that you think are going to make the technology uh, safer and more secure and more sort of future-proof. 
Um, there are certain kinds of standards that might also be really good for democratic governance. As one example, uh, ensuring that there's privacy protection within AI, that um, uh, you could have systems like federated learning, um, which is a um, approach to, uh, to AI that, that Andrew Trask and others have been developing, uh, which allows privacy um, uh, protection uh, even as you're training AI models. Um, perhaps the um, requirements that, um, that models be compatible with certain levels of encryption, again, for privacy protection. Um, so baking in um, privacy and security and safety um, from the start when these standards are developed um, is, is going to make it easier uh, to ensure sort of um, that, uh, that these technologies are broadly uh, valuable and safe for society and so that you don't have to keep baking in after the fact, um, you know, retrofitting uh, safety when, you, when, you, um, uh, when it's already broadly distributed. And do you think at the moment these organizations are able to manage that? Or do you think there's scope to leverage some of these conversations to, say, our bilateral relationship through Ausmin or multilateral alliances like AUKUS or the Quad? Yeah, I mean, these, these technology standards organizations are not well funded. And the, um, the participants who come from, um, from the standards bodies in individual countries uh, themselves tend not to be well funded. Um, so, for example, in the United States, uh, there's the National Institute of Standards and Technology, NIST, uh, one of my favorite you know, federal agencies in the U.S., um, but not one of the better funded agencies. And when it comes to um, participating in these um, standards meetings, sometimes they don't even have the travel budget uh, to attend. Um, or you know, they can send only one person instead of the three people who are the subject matter experts. Um, so I think this is an area that where we need much greater investment. Let's shift the segment on alliances. Technologies impact all nations and effective governments need to collaborate with industry and academia to solve complex policy problems. What is the role of alliance building in technology policy? Yeah, I mean, because there's there's no single country that has a lock on, on technology, I mean, first, all of these technology supply chains are ones that are, uh, that are globalized. Now, it might not be, you know, more than four or five countries at a time that control a significant market share of these technologies. Um, but it's, it's uh, virtually um, impossible for one country to say, oh, yeah, we've got this technology covered. Um, so you have to develop um, alliances to think about how you collectively arrive at supply chains that are going to be able to deliver the technologies that society needs. Um, so alliances, I, I think, are going to be um, really important for a variety of kind of technology goals that we have. Um, among the things that I think are, are going to be really important are developing technology standards, um, collectively coming up with approaches to supply chain security. Um, and that means not just reshoring or onshoring, but friendshoring. Um, third is coming up with approaches to technology governance um, that are you know, compatible across national borders. Um, and then a, a fourth reason to, to have these kinds of alliances is for tech and horizon scanning. Um, you know, it, it makes just a lot of sense to cumulatively combine our knowledge about what we see on the horizon, the things that we're anxious about, the things that we're hopeful about. Um, and there's been a huge amount of information sharing between uh, the Australian and U.S. governments historically around technology and its, its security impacts, for example. You've, you've almost led into the next question. Um, how do you see intelligence agencies and intelligence communities contributing to alliances? 
Yeah, I mean, I think the the Five Eyes Alliance has been, you know, among the most important and most successful alliances in in our respective histories. So uh, it's one that I was just like profoundly impressed by when I was in the U.S. intelligence community. I mean, we worked so closely with our with our Australian colleagues and with our our U.K. and New Zealand and Canada colleagues, and the the alliance that's created by the Five Eyes construct is one in which information sharing is possible, technology sharing is possible, a shared appreciation of opportunities and risks, really candid discussions, a, a, a kind of collegiality uh, that comes from that engagement. And I think, you know, there's, there's you know, questions about whether we need like five eyes plus, you know, for certain kinds of intelligence topics that I think make sense. We have other intelligence sharing uh, agreements. I mean, none that is as, as robust probably as the five eyes, but I think that that arrangement is, is like a role model for, um, for other things that we can do with alliances. In the last 20 years, technology has permeated almost every aspect of our lives. You have been at the centre of these trends in government and the NSC. Can you describe for our listeners what it means for intelligence? I think that uh, that AI will be incredibly valuable, has been already uh, really valuable to intelligence analysis. We've seen so, some of the earliest returns really in the government's use of AI we've seen in the intelligence community. Um, and I think that's, that's likely to increase. Um, I think we need to be especially thoughtful about how AI is applied to um, cyber operations and cybersecurity um, because it's not clear that AI offers an asymmetric advantage to either defense or offense. Um, so I think that will be really complicated what its net effects are. In other sort of like areas where I think there's just like tremendous potential for, um, for technology being used in intelligence, I mean, some of these are, you just sort of think like, well, is that really high tech? So a lot of it still comes down to when humans are making judgments about really hard problems uh, that are uh, uncertain and they're working under time pressure, you just want to make sure that the analytic tools that human analysts have access to are ones that allow them to share information really, really well, really efficiently. Um, so finding ways of you know breaking down the silos and um, and barriers that you know separate analysts of different disciplines that allow them to spot where analysts disagree, any tools that allow pre-mortem analysis that allow you know crux mapping, um, like prediction markets for internal use by Intel analysts so that they can see where they disagree about judgments and what evidence um, accounts for their disagreements. I think those are those are really valuable. They're not high tech. Um, but they are like applications of technology that can make analysts uh, sort of superpowered. You've spent time as the director of IAPA. Can you tell us a bit about the organization and a bit about your time there? Yeah. Oh, it's it's a great organization. It's um, uh, it's the advanced research arm of the the U.S. intelligence uh, community. Um, Is that it, the quiet cousin of DARPA? I mean, <laughs> yeah. Sometimes it, I think uh, like in one article it said it's basically DARPA for spies. Um, but uh, you know, it's it's more than that because it's um, it's coming up with new approaches to intelligence analysis, leveraging you know insights that we have from the research and human judgment and decision making, um, figuring out how to apply AI to a range of really hard analytic problems, um, figuring out how to solve hard technical problems in in collection and in operations. Um, and one thing that's unusual about IARPA is that there isn't any in-house research. Um, it's uh, it's program managers who are subject matter experts um, who 
find researchers in academia and in industry and in national labs and then compete out the, um, the hard problem. And so they, they sort of run research tournaments in which um, interdisciplinary teams of researchers uh, are, are all sort of like competing uh, in order to achieve a very hard set of technical goals. Um, and uh, it doesn't institutionalize any of these programs. So, you know, the programs run for typically three to five years and then they stop and either they've achieved their goals or they haven't. Um, things that aren't achieving their goals are ended early. Um, and that kind of discipline of, of not continuing to fund things that aren't working is really hard. Um, I mean, it's, it's unusual. Um, but it has a big impact, as does having program managers and other staff with term limits, um, usually not to exceed five years. So I didn't spend more than five years in, in any of the positions that I had there. And that kind of discipline means like you, you feel the clock ticking the day you start work and you want to work as quickly as you can to solve hard problems. And you know that you're not going to be there forever. Um, so you, you need to make a difference quickly. We spoke to Sue Gordon about the challenges of integrating technology into intelligence, and, and we we're specifically talking about Incutel. How was IARPA working to bring things into the intelligence community, and what can other agent, other intelligence agencies and communities, particularly those in Australia, learn? Yeah, I mean, Incutel is this great model, and you know, th thanks to the work that Sue did to to stand it up, intelligence community. Um, in the U.S., but also among our Five Eyes partners, now has sort of access of ways of bringing in commercial technologies uh, that that exist but have not been integrated into the IC. And IARPA is, is sort of an analog for technologies that don't yet exist that we need to integrate into the IC. Um, so even earlier stage um, research and technology. Um, and I think the the integration challenge um, is is a hard one. There's like a you know valleys of death that is often between the research stage and uh, hardening a piece of technology so that it can actually be fieldable. Um, one of the things uh, that IERPA does is to have transition partners, the the folks who will ultimately be in the agencies and needing to deploy the technology or field it, uh, present at the moment of of creation so that they can. Um, they can address uh, the mission needs of the technology once it's deployed. Um, now, you have to be careful in the way that you ask the question about, like, well, what is the technology that you actually need? There's this um, line in, about Henry Ford saying, you know, if, if I asked my customers what they want, they'd ask for a faster horse. So um, you really need to frame the question in a way, like, what is the mission need, as opposed to uh, asking the transition partner to prescribe the way of addressing the mission need, which is really the problem of the program manager and the research teams. Um, but it's a phenomenal model in um, that it takes on some of these incredibly hard technical challenges and in intelligence. And um, when it when these programs succeed, then you see them go into the field and just completely transform um, an intelligence operation. Can you give us some examples of how technologies through IAPA have helped contemporary intelligence or national security problems? Yeah, there's there's a there's a handful I can talk about, and of course um, more that I that I can't, um, and those are those are just as interesting. Um, but the the ones that we can talk about, there's uh, there's a, a amazing program called Silmarils um, at IARPA that uh, developed in incredibly sensitive uh, ways of uh, detecting uh, chemicals, including chemical explosives, um, uh, residues uh, on surfaces um, from great distances. Um, and the ability to do that um, is just 
transformative for our ability to do sort of um, counterproliferation work um, because instead of doing a close access operation where you're having to you know go into a facility, um, you can take from a great distance a scan of a doorknob um, uh, uh, from a safe distance uh, that um, that then tells you whether there's something to worry about or not in that facility. Um, it's amazing. Um, there's a, another project that um, that's fun to talk about because it's something we can kind of all imagine doing, which is um, forecasting world events. Um, so there's a program a number of years ago at IARPA in which um, tens of thousands of people from around the world uh, made several million forecasts of geopolitical events, and IARPA kept score and figured out which of the forecasts were, were accurate because they were about real-world events, and we actually just waited for history to happen. Um, you know, like forecasting the outcomes of foreign elections or whether there would be a skirmish in, um, in Kashmir or whether, you know, North Korea would test a nuclear device by a certain time. And we just scored these, these probability forecasts um, and, uh, and then figured out, like, which people and which groups of people uh, were most accurate. And the, uh, there were several things from that that were really interesting. One is it's really hard to beat the unweighted average of judgments of a large group of people. Um, and, the, you know, this is sometimes called the wisdom of the crowd. Um, so if, if, you're, um, if you're like me, where you're having, like, to make decisions about things that I'm not an expert in, um, I find a really good approach is to pull a bunch of people um, and take the average. <laughs> and now you've got evidence to prove that's the now best we've got approach. evidence. Yeah, that's right. Um, so that's that's really interesting that we kind of ran what was really the world's largest geopolitical forecasting tournament and came came out with support for this um, sort of uh, wisdom of the crowd approach. Um, and we um, we we demonstrated the same um, the same results inside the intelligence community where several thousand intel analysts. Uh, participated as well. I wanted to go to geopolitical events for one minute. The war in Ukraine has brought to the fore for the public the involvement of private actors like Starlink in national security matters and decisions. What are the implications from the war in Ukraine for global tech companies? Yeah, I mean, I think in the in the same way, sort of that the Spanish Civil War was sort of a a, a training ground, um, you know, for the world war of, of like new technologies and tactics. I think we're seeing Ukraine potentially be a training ground for new technologies and new tactics um, for what the future of, of warfare looks like in the next couple of decades. Um, so this, this integration of commercial platforms um, being leveraged um, as, as part of combat is, is one of them. Um, I think we're also seeing, um, you know, tactics that involve uh, what's sometimes called large numbers of small things, you know, like attributable munitions, um, uh, UAVs that are very, very small, um, you know, like uh, human portable and also have um, uh, like a level of, um, of attrition that is uh, that you wouldn't mind because the, they're so low cost. And I think um, this, this sort of like staging area of, uh, of seeing these systems um, compete with one another on the, on the battlefield is one that all countries will be watching closely in order to plan for, for the next war. Um, I'm going to pivot away to another segment. So emerging technology for emerging leaders. You have held national leadership roles during big tech developments. Can you give insight into how you have led others to navigate major tech changes in your career? You know, I think um, one is just hiring uh, great people. Uh, the second is uh, trying to give top cover to people 
to work on the most important problems. Like there's um, there's certain kinds of problems that for one reason or another are just being ignored, even though they're incredibly consequential. Um, and those are those are really good problems to work on because chances are your effort can make a huge difference at the margins. Can you share some emerging technologies you think up and coming leaders of today and tomorrow need to know about? Well, the the obvious ones um, are things like AI and and synthetic biology. Um, and I think that um, uh, like even after we appreciate how important these technologies are, they are probably still more important than we imagine that they are, just because I think they're so foundational. Um, AI really could be an amplifier for uh, for technological change in so many different domains um, because AI can itself be used as a tool for scientific discovery. Um, bio is is sort of a, a tool for um, for manufacturing. I mean, it's a you know, in insofar as AI is a tool about you know converting bits of of, of information, um, bio is a really good tool for converting atoms of moving atoms around. Um, so between uh, AI as a system for processing information and biology as a system for processing matter, um, we have two incredibly powerful platform technologies. Um, and then I, I think there are other technologies that are you know sort of more niche but are I think really important and can be very disruptive. Um, things like quantum computing, if that becomes um, uh, cost effective at scale, uh, then you know we'll at least need to be rethinking encryption. And fortunately, um, organizations like NIST and others have been thinking about what post uh, or quantum resistant cryptography looks like. Um, and then there's there's other technologies that I, I'm really excited about. Uh, because I think they could um, they could be incredibly helpful. So, for example, figuring out like ways to dramatically improve education through like digital tutors and personalized uh, tutoring is I think you know could be really transformative. So, coming up in the segment eyes and ears, what have you been reading, listening to, or watching lately that might be of interest to our audience? I've been rereading uh, a great book um, uh, by Toby Ord called The Precipice, and um, Toby's an a Australian-born uh, philosopher at, at Oxford. The Precipice is a book about existential risk. Um, it's about, you know, what are, what are the things um, that we face as a civilization that could really undo us? Um, and, you know, among the things that we really need to get right are biosecurity, you know, the security guardrails that we build up around synthetic biology and the guardrails that we build up around, around AI. And there's also a really good discussion of close calls and, and, uh, and nuclear weapons and nuclear policy. It's just such a thoughtful uh, book and so well written. Thank you. Thanks so much for your time. Thanks so much, Mia. Thanks for listening to Technology and Security. I've been your host, Dr. Mia Hammondary. I'm the inaugural director of the Emerging Tech Program at the United States Studies Center, based at the University of Sydney. If there was a moment you enjoyed today or a question you have about the show, feel free to tweet me at M-I-A-H underscore H-G or send an email to the address in the show notes. You can find out more about the work we do on our website, also linked in the show notes. We hope you enjoy this episode and we'll see you soon.